In this episode of the Healthcare Huddle, we meet with Joyce Tapley, who is the CEO of Foremost Health Clinics in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we discuss a lot about the health disparities that she sees in the marketplace, the role that social determinants play in that, some of the impact that that has not only to the patients but the neighborhood and community at large and then we delve into some of the creative solutions that Joyce and her team are trying to implement in order to bridge those gaps and bring up closer connection to the patient and drive better outcomes as a result of that. I will tell you that I found Joyce to be uh, clearly very knowledgeable on the subject, both from a personal experience standpoint and also from her work that she's been doing for the last 30 years. And it's clear also that she's deeply committed to the mission. So sit back and enjoy this episode of the Healthcare Huddle. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. I'm very happy today to have our guest, Joyce Tapley, join the show. Joyce is the CEO of Foremost Family Health Centers located in the Dallas, Texas metro area. And to give you a sense of the mission, Foremost provides a full range of services, including pediatrics, pediatric and adult dentistry, behavioral, family medicine, OBGYN, and lab. And Joyce has a particular interest in leveraging her job experience and knowledge to eradicate health disparities. And so I think that Joyce's perspective on these health disparities from her kind of big city perspective will be a nice bookend to our previous episode about health disparities in our more rural environments. So I'm interested to hear the similarities and the contrast to discover as we explore this topic. Joyce, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. I am very happy to be here and looking forward to the opportunity to talk about some of the experiences I've had over the last 30 plus years. Great. I know I've had about 30 plus years of experience and it doesn't matter who you are, you accumulate stories and experience. That time just beats it into you, right? Yes, that is true. So maybe for our listeners, you could just start off by giving us a sense of the scope and extent of your enterprise. So they have a uh, an understanding, maybe you can form us on, you know, kind of maybe your catchment area, annual visits, the, you know, just the skies and scope. So as we talk about these things, they help get a better idea of what you're driving down there. Certainly. So health centers, and just, just to know, uh, Foremost Family Health Centers has been around since 1986. It's a primary care, multi-specialty group practice in, based in Dallas, Texas. We have an office also in Balt Springs, which is about 15 minutes. It's still in Dallas County, um, but it's about 15 minutes from our corporate office. And we are in an underserved area, South Dallas, which okay. is an area that has about a little over 100,000 residents. Even though we're in the city of Dallas, we actually see patients that are coming 40 to 50 miles 
away to come to our multi-specialty group practices. Wow. We could actually take care of the entire family at one site, from literally from head to toe, because like you said, we have behavioral health and dentistry, all of the primary care, speci- medical specialties, OB, pediatrics, and also podiatry and the lab services. And then we have formalized relationships with local hospitals and private practice groups that we can refer out for patients that don't that need specialty services in patient care. Uh, but our catchment areas is, our target area is about five miles from our main location. But like I said, approximately 50% of our patients come from outside of our catchment area because there are a lot of areas within the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex that have residents, individuals, and families who need primary care, need a primary care patient-centered medical home and a dental home. And to go to one place and get all of that taken care of is pretty rare. So we have been structured in a way to really focus on primary care and prevention. And we do everything we can to keep people from going to the urgent care and the emergency room unnecessarily. Sure. Our catchment area is wide. We see people from within our main area, from outside. And if they have insurance or don't have insurance, we can still take care of them. We just offer discounts to those based on income and family size. Sure. So let me ask you, you already said a couple of things that I want to pursue. And the first one is it's counterintuitive to me and maybe to our listeners also that in the Dallas metro area, notwithstanding South Dallas, that people would have to drive 40 or 50 miles to get care. And so maybe it's it's geographical ignorance that I have because in my mind, I'm thinking you shouldn't be able to drive 15 miles uh, without running into a provider. So help educate me on why I'm thinking about this wrong. You're thinking about it correctly. And there are hospitals, specialty group practices, other health centers that are close to um, individuals and families. But one of the things that we have seen over the years is people are being more selective about who they trust to take care of them. I have a dentist right down the street from me, but I use Foremost Family Health Centers for my dentistry because for one, I don't like going to the dentist and hearing all that noise. But when I I have a relationship with a provider who will educate me on how I need to maintain my oral health. I chose to go there. So the same thing is with people in various communities. There are quite a few practices, primary care practices they can go to, but people are being selective because they want to feel comfortable knowing that whoever's taking care of them or their family members or their, their parents, they're going to go to somebody they can trust and because there's there've been so many changes over the years, recent years too, where people who are working may have to contribute to the premiums of their health care. If they're going to spend money out of their pocket, they're going to shop to get what they believe will be the best type of service. So we focus a lot on professionalism, making sure we are able to expand our hours when patients need them. And we have a great relationship with our patients when they come in over the generations. And so people are selective. So yes, they can go right down the street if they want to, but for some reason, they seem, when they've come to us for all the services, then they seem to stay and, and continue their, their, ser- their services um, on a regular basis. 
So you you certainly are correct. You would think that there are a lot of places located near the residence, and there are, but people are selective. And fortunately, they're choosing us because we really can help them manage their chronic conditions if they have chronic conditions, help them prevent any types of illnesses by doing preventive treatments and screenings. So we offer all of those. And like I said, we can do it for the entire family. So a, a family doesn't have to go four or five places yeah. to get all of their health care. And it's much more affordable if they're comparing our rates to some of the other private practices in most cases. So that's that's how we're set up. But our main focus is taking care of those who are uninsured and underserved communities so that they can have the same access and high quality services that they may not get in areas. And and that kind of brings me to uh, a personal story, if you don't mind my sharing no. a story. Okay. So I'm a military brat. My father is a decorated Air Force retiree. He's a veteran. He served in the United States Air Force and retired as a major. So he, he traveled quite a bit. But when my father retired from the Air Force, one of the things that was difficult when he got into private, both he and my mother had a difficult time finding physicians who would take care of them and all of their needs, sit down and, and get to know them and ask the questions that they need so that they can care, take care of them. They had a difficult time with that. And given that I've been in healthcare for quite some time, I knew what questions they needed to ask. But it took my help and my father with many different doctors and specialists to do all of these workup and all of the screenings that they needed to do so that he could find out how healthy he was. Well, I had to convince my father to literally lie to the doctors and expand the issues that he, and complaints that he had in order for them to actually uh, run the tests that need to be run because I knew what they needed to do on him. And it turned out that he had four areas of his heart blocked, 90% blockage. It should not take someone to have to go through that level of care and asking questions and, and having to exaggerate the symptoms they have for them to be taken care of. That was the only way we would have known. And so for what's been concerning for me over the years is that if a decorated veteran is treated that way, and this is a black man, it makes me wonder just how many more people that aren't decorated veterans or aren't serving in the military, what they're going through to get their, their care. So the inequality is there. And it's my personal passion and professional passion to continue to stay in the community to provide the access that is needed for everyone, particularly well, those in underserved and vulnerable populations. Well, it also speaks to, he's a decorated Air Force major, but he was also lucky to have a daughter who could help him navigate the system. And so yes. you didn't expressly say it, but Implicit was that in that comment, and correct me if my interpretation is wrong, is that is there a difference? Is the perception that because he's a black man that there's a difference in the tests that they would want to run? Is that the issue? That is part of the issue, yes. Over the years, over the decades, black and Hispanic and low-income communities, individuals, families, are not given the same level 
of access to care and access to the types of treatment and tests, I've experienced the same. My mother has experienced the same. We see that where we work. That is reality. As a matter of fact, we are working right now with a production company and we're putting together what we call a deficit of value. It's a multi-episode documentary series set in Dallas County in Texas, where we are located. And what we're doing is examining the relationship between health, access to healthcare, and the painful journey of those who've learned that quality and respectful care is not for them. That's, that's our impetus. And one of the things that's going to be taking place in this series over five episodes is we plan on exploring the fundamental and unresolved questions about the ethics of healthcare for people who receive healthcare in America and those true lived experiences of the vulnerable population. That certainly sounds like it'll be enlightening and I think it's exciting too. I'm curious, I know that you're not a provider and I'm asking you to speculate a bit, but I'm curious if you have any insight or thoughts as to what the thought process is that happens in the exam room. I have to tell you that I've worked in healthcare for a long time in various capacities, and I can't get in the head of a provider. And so I'm wondering if it's because they're uh, of lower economic status that there's a belief that they can't afford the, the payments to do the extra testing, or is it, I'm trying to wrap my head around the thought process or lack thereof that happens in an exam room. And I've worked with many different physicians of race and ethnicity and, you know, origin of where they grew up. And, and so I don't have a sense of, I can't get a gestalt of what might be going on in their brains as they're in the exam room. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into that. I don't know what goes, what's in the mind of, of individual doctors other than the ones I've worked around. And, and just so you know, I've, I've worked in large hospitals. I started out in Los Angeles County, Harbor UCLA Medical Center, yep. which is a teaching hospital and San Francisco General Hospital. I worked there and at executive level, and then even at a multi-specialty group practice here in, in Fort Worth that actually, we were the contract physician staff to staff John Peter Smith Hospital, worked around blacks and white providers, mostly white. But one of the things that I have noticed over the years, just in working with uh, the, the various specialists and, and primary care pr practices, is that they look at a person who either has money or does not have money, and there are some differences at times with what communication is, is said to that particular patient and whether or not the patient understands what's being uh, said to them. Like you said at the beginning, do, do you asked, is it because the person may not have the same level of ex education? That's one of the answers, yes. So sometimes people may not want to go in as much depth that they need to. But I can say this, patients, even if they don't have income, even if they may live in an underserved area, they're very intelligent. You just need to speak to them like you would speak to your parents and give them the information they need. I haven't gone to medical school, so I certainly can't say what they have taught. But on the receiving end, there is a difference in many cases on how someone is treated. So at the beginning of the, the 20th century, some of the brightest minds said that the question confronting America would be the boundaries of the color line, okay? It is our belief 
that the question of the 21st century is that of the zip code line. There is a difference yeah. and healthcare typifies yep. this reality. So in America, where you live right now will most likely determine if your baby lives to his or her first birthday and it determines when they die. If it's at 22, 62 or 82. Yep. So where you live will influence whether your child has chronic untreated asthma or falls victim to a sort of a trauma or may have suicide or being in an area where they're poisoned by water infused with lead and heavy metals or whether or not your child watches a family member die by a bullet. That is reality. That is reality. And so those are some of the reasons why Regardless of how a doctor has been trained, it's our responsibility to make sure that the relationship with the doctor and the patient is, is a secure foundation. Patients need to, especially underserved populations, patients need to have trust in the persons that, that's sitting in front of them. And more than likely, when that person sitting in front of them, that doctor or that nurse looks like them, they have a lot more confidence that they're going to be treated fairly and given the best type of care. Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05%, a zero pay denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality healthcare to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's Revenue Cycle Management Solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system. The same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to encompasshds.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and click Learn More to schedule your discovery call today. That's an interesting comment, and I want to hold the thought on that for a second and, and give you an observation. You know, it's been my perspective, both having been in large systems and kind of had the same path you did in some ways. It is a zip code thing. It's starting to become a zip code thing because there's many of those same issues in our rural healthcare environments, right? These same issues of not getting access to adequate quick care. There's a, a deficit in maybe education levels. There's a deficit in funding to be able to bring these. There's in some of those pockets in rural, there's an increase of drug use and potential for abuse or trauma. And it seems to me that the only place that's relatively immune from some of those things, and I say relatively, are the suburban areas. <laughs> It seems like there's two extremes on each end of these, this bell curve, and right in the middle sits this suburban oasis. They wrestle with these problems potentially, but not certainly to the same level, extent, or impact on their communities. And it is zip code based. You're 100% right. And it's the two bookends, and we're not necessarily, in my opinion, 
on a global scale, addressing all of the reasons for those inequities. And it's going to come home to roost. You can't pretend like it's not happening. It's a growing problem, right? And coronavirus has, the pandemic has definitely shined a big light on such differences and such inequalities. It's unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic to do that because these issues have been around quite some time. It's just, it's not been magnified through media. That certainly does help. I remember when I was in grad school back in the late 80s, and we were talking about how there were 30 million people uninsured back then. Now we're at close to 90. Right. And the reasons for the uninsured are very similar. It's, it, the access is just not available. And with the community health centers and other you know, hospitals who are focusing on communities now, um, providing those services, that does help. But what's more important is when someone walks through the doors, the culture of every practice should be that when people walk through the doors, they're going to care for them to the extent that they are trained, the level that they are trained, and that they have a culture of helping people you know, not get sick. I mean, there are plenty of preventive ways that we can teach each other how to avoid certain chronic conditions. Not everything that everyone receives or every condition is inherited. It's not hereditary. There may be lifestyle changes that sure. we can be educated on. Sure. I mean, we, we see a lot of that too. We know money drives how practices work. We know that. But when people are going to school, when they're going to work, there are probably two or three people in their circle that have health issues and they may not be accessing it the way they need to because of lack of income or they can't afford the insurance or they just don't know where to go and they're not being treated well. That needs to change. We want, this is a, this is a, a country that is very wealthy. And in order for the country to continue to do well, our offspring and our generations following us need to be educated to the max and to be given the, the equality and the acts for everything, education and being able to have good employment and health insurance and all of those things, not just healthcare, it's, it's all of those, it's education too. Those are disparities. Um, yeah, I wanna go back to a comment that you made. It's interesting to me that a patient will walk into a room and see somebody that looks like them. My mom is from Puerto Rico and, and she's had some of these same experiences. But what's interesting to me is, and I used to say to her, mom, you know, that person is the same problems exist. That person is much more educated. They're in a much higher income level. They live a completely different lifestyle. They went to probably some very good schools and were high achieving in those schools. And so it's interesting that they start with an assumption of what they look like, but what really it comes down to, whether they're whatever color or ethnicity they are, is from the moment they open their mouth, are they being a servant leader, right? Are yes. they are they putting that patient first? And I think that while that initial step into the room and my mom can speak Spanish to someone goes a long way, it goes a long way. But if that person who speaks Spanish or is from Puerto Rico is still is not viewing my mom 
in the right way, she's still not going to have that bond that needs to be established to do all of these other things, the preventative health, the following up, the, the you know, d- dealing with the chronic management and care. And so it's just always interesting to me that the patients themselves engage in a screening process that's not based on logic or fact, right? You know, that is true that they are doing a screening process and it is valid to do that because there have been so many sure. historical situations whereby patients that are not viewed as the same economic level or, or education. educational level as a physician or a nurse practitioner or other clinical people that walk through the doors, that, that, that bias is there. And at some point it needs to not be because we're supposed to be caring for each other. So a person who's had bad experiences like your mother, like my mother, like my father and others, that's going to stick with them until they can be convinced that someone really cares about them. And they're, they're deserving of that. Agreed. Particularly when they're, whether they have insurance or if they're paying out of pocket, if you're going to pay for a service, it's got to be a service for professional as well as the actual type of service that's being given. I think it's, yeah. And I think it's, there's also, you know, the practices and the physicians at times do screenings too, just like you said, whether it's based on this person can't understand me and I'm not going to, I don't have the time to spend 20 minutes to try to go through and explain all this when they can't understand me, or they have an understanding that maybe this is a non-insured patient and there's a fear that they're not going to get reimbursed or it's only going to be partial. And they're in many times, certainly in private practice, they're working on a production model, right? That requires them or has an expectation to drive volume through the practice in order to generate returns. And I think that that's another problem that we have is that somehow the system has become warped so that revenue is at the top or one of the top two or three things that are always considered all the time in the facility, in the exam, certainly in a private practice and in many hospitals. And I understand the need, but there's also this point where you go, how much is enough um, for the private doctor? And when is that reimbursement plenty where they can slow down and maybe devote more time to each patient, take the time to explain and work their way through that education gap or any other issues that arise. So I think there's a financial pressure, uh, real and quite frankly, sometimes due to greed that exists out there that also warps the system. Yeah, I, And I certainly understand that because again, I've been in the private sector side as well as the public. One of the, th- the things that I'm really excited about and what drives me in, in the role that I am with, with our health centers, because we have almost 100 employees and we, we hand select our physicians and, and dentists and nurses and professional team. I mean, they, we, they're all paid and not volunteer there. This is a regular private yeah. practice. But what is important to me, and I mentioned this uh, maybe a little bit earlier, professionalism, the employees growing professionally, being promoted from within, those and, and actually establishing a culture where yes. people understand that if when we provide the best quality care in a team approach, all we can do is to continue to see more people coming to us. And that drives up revenue when we are seeing people on a regular basis and they're having a good experience because patient satisfaction is one of the, the outcomes that we're looking at. And the higher that is, then the more we're going to get business. And so it's important for me in my role to maintain staff members, 
recruit highly qualified and skilled staff members, but they have to naturally exude the culture and the professionalism and the, the team approach to delivering the services. I mean, it is a business. Healthcare is a business and we do need to make enough money to cover all of our salaries, all of our bills, and also promote people. And to do that, our product that we sell, healthcare services, patient satisfaction, high quality outcomes, those are what it's going to take. And so if people now really have an option of where they want to go, they're going to go someplace that they believe they can trust. And that is something that I would hope that in the healthcare industry, the owners and the managers and people who have a stake in that business being successful, that they really do focus on the patient. Because when they do that, they really will receive more services and, and more business. And, and then the patient gets what they need. I can tell you, though, without uh, revealing too much, that I've been in rooms. Everything you say, I agree with. I think that culturally, it's a big shift in a lot of ways because I've I've been in rooms with physicians, physician partners in every different stripe who are uh, already making enough money to be in the 99th percentile. They're in the top 1%, right? But they're arguing about money. And and the arguments can become quite emotional and <laughs> sometimes heated. Um, heated and pointed yes, and I've personal. Seen that too. <laughs> and it's curious to me that you already have achieved more financial success than 99% of the people on the planet. You have more than you'll need, really, but there's this continued drive for more. And it's the ability to, I think, root that out. I'm not discounting anything else that you've said. I'm saying in addition to that, that mentality drives a lot of the dysfunction, I think, in the system. Yes, that is very true. We see that in, in every industry where yep. it's humans, where people are, that's right, we, we are human. And my human side is as long as I'm in the positions that I'm in, I want to groom and coach and hire and retain and promote people who will run that practice in a humanistic way um, so that we get more business. We're doing the right thing. We, we can go home and be with our families and know that we are making a difference. Even in the, when I was in private practice, the same, the same culture, the same drive is there. And, and we just have to make the impact that we can yes. where we are. But yep. we can't change everybody just like somebody cannot change me to start being you know, hardcore and going in a different direction. That's just not my nature. But if I can make a difference and promote more and hire more, grow the company, expand out, then I will continue to do that. And hopefully uh, others will do the same. Uh, amen. And you're right. All we can do is light a candle in our corner of the darkness. And, and hopefully that's part of what this conversation is, is more people understand and, and see this from different perspectives. It'll engage people to be that force of change that they want to see. Right. And so I'm curious on your perspective, if, if maybe, and maybe I'm asking too big of a question, but these health disparities, right, where we don't get the testing, there isn't preventative care, there's not the follow-up and all driven by a variety of reasons that we've talked about. I think we all understand intuitively the results that that has on patients, right? And we can even extrapolate those individual results on patients with 
those conditions become exacerbated. They're more chronic. They require more utilization in the system. So it drives up costs. There's a decrease in quality of life. There's a shortness in their life expectancy. Do you see maybe even a bigger scope than that of an impact when disparities are not addressed, health disparities are not addressed on neighborhoods or Dallas at large, or even in Texas? Do you do you see a ripple effect throughout the community in other ways? It is already spread in terms of a ripple effect because there are so many more counties, cities, zip codes in the Dallas County area in, in the state of Texas, whereby people are still not getting that access. And so, you know, one of the things that the federal government um, and many administrations have done, many administrations have done over the last 50 years is they have committed funding for community health centers that focus on the uninsured and underserved to build and operate in the underserved areas and to expand their reach. That process has been going on for over 50 years. And and it's been making a difference because when people do have the access to the care, whether, and everybody doesn't have to come into the facility. We have mobile units. There are uh, home visits. So we're at telemedicine. Yep. We're being creative. People are being creative and systems are being creative on how we reach and provide the access. One of the biggest things too that we see is there is an increase in higher quality of care. The clinical outcome measures are actually improving, but it takes time because we are working with people who have a certain lifestyle that we may not be able to control. And so all of these other social determinants of health impact a person. I have a daughter with asthma and you know we have to look at our environment. Should we be having a shag rug? Should it be carpet or should it be something that's easy to clean? It's the same situation in other areas. If someone has asthma or if someone has diabetes and they're not able to afford the glucometer, the strips, all those things that will help them start managing themselves. If they don't have that, then we, we can't make a difference. However, because these community-based health centers are setting up chronic disease management programs to help patients start monitoring themselves and understanding what changes, lifestyle changes they can make, they are making a difference. But it's going to take time to see uh, the impact just because all the funds aren't available to do everything at once, but it's slowly occurring and getting better. And I truly believe that the more we talk about the requirement to treat anybody who walks through the doors the same, particularly those who have been left behind the vulnerable communities, the Blacks, the low-income whites, low-income Hispanics, and other um, people who have a difficult time with resources, if we can continue to do our part and being more equitable, that will make a difference. But it's, it's going to take time, and we have to be truthful about it. Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions provides full suite IT managed services and security solutions in order for companies to operate successfully in the current highly connected environment. Has your company chosen to increase remote working capacity? Has your company been looking to transition more of its IT infrastructure to the cloud? The Encompass team has helped numerous client partners adapt their business infrastructure to be more remote friendly while improving their security posture. 
Our team of information technology professionals will test your team with friendly phishing attempts and help you train your team to follow more secure behaviors to protect your business and reputation. With industry-leading service level response times, Encompass's IT team will help keep your enterprise operating smoothly and in a position to minimize the inevitable attack. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Information Technology, and click the Learn More button to schedule a discovery call. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think sometimes these conversations make people uncomfortable. I'm not yes. I'm not sure I understand the psychology behind that discomfort. I can acknowledge that there's a disparity or that there's a problem without having it mean be a moratorium on who I am as a human being, right? So I'm not always sure I understand the discomfort or the resistance to the concepts. Nonetheless, what I see and what I was trying to drive to is that, you know, there's this snowball effect that happens, right? And so these underserved communities who are do not have all of the access to the various types of healthcare that they need, whether it's prevention, whether it's monitoring, whether it's education. Well, some of those people now become worse and now they can't work anymore. And so now they're on disability or their kids now are becoming less able to function because they're untreated environments, as you described, maybe for an asthma and there's no way to get out of that. And now that kid isn't doing as well in school and maybe isn't participating in extracurricular activities. And so this horizon, the future horizon for the kids is shorter and, and smaller. And the, the societal burden for those adults who were not helping in the front end is coming back to us in other ways. And so there's also a myopia about a myopic view of well, that's just a healthcare. People should just stop smoking. And it's like, it's more complicated than that. And it's bigger. And I think that people have trouble if they're not in the system working in it, grasping the scope and extent of the impact that this has on their community, on their neighbors, and ultimately all of us, because the bill comes due and we're all going to pay it, whether we're paying it in higher taxes or people are utilizing emergency rooms or, right, it, it's, there's no free lunch. And so it's an education writ large, I think, to overcome some of this resistance to the idea that there can be disparities. And it's okay. There can be disparities and we can talk about it. We do need to be about solutions. And part of the solutions needs to be incorporated in education. As we see efforts being made to remove certain parts of history, we certainly need to determine how we can educate starting from middle school or elementary school, even on healthy lifestyle changes. But even if we do that, we have to equip those who don't have the resources. We have to equip them with what they need so that they can participate in that solution. I mean, you can talk about going and getting organic fruits and vegetables or some better produce, but if you don't have, if you're in a community that doesn't have a grocery store every mile or so, you may only have one in the entire community. That's not going to help because more than likely what they have is not going to be what, what the person needs. And who knows how do we really convince others that this inequality is there and needs to change. But the more we talk about it, the more examples that we share and the more 
people are exposed to what's really taking place, hopefully they will get it. And and part of what we're the reason why we're doing this uh, docu series, the deficit of value, which is produced by a great media group, it's because we want people to really see the journey those that are in vulnerable populations are going through. Because this is reality and we want to try to prevent this from continuing to happen. I agree with you that a big portion of this is educating and giving people a glimpse into the world because I think when people understand and can see it, you know, humanity and compassion and empathy will rise up, right? A lot of times as humans, we do our best when things are at their worst. And in this sense of, well, if somebody else gets something, it means I'm losing something kind of goes away. So I think those efforts are are great. And it's it's perplexing to me. My background is numbers and science and math. And so uh, I tend to be maybe over logical, but many times I just look at it and think to myself and go, let's just focus on the solutions and not get caught up in the emotions. But these issues that we're talking about, they engender great emotional response. And to illustrate that point, we see our politicians of all stripes manipulating those emotional responses for their own gain or their agenda. And I think that in a non-threatening way to be able to bring light to these ideas in a calm, rational way with solution sets is our path forward. My problem is it seems like it takes forever. I'm an impatient man, even at my advanced age. I'm it like, sounds to me like we have a lot in common. <laughs> well, I feel sorry <laughs> for you if that's true. <laughs> well, you know, I have a math background as well and, uh, and science and finance and all that great stuff. But we have a heart. We have compassion. And that's a natural part of us, too. We are right and left brain people. And what we're trying to do is to really shine the light on the populations that are most vulnerable so that we can bring them into the solution. And, but we're this, we're really the solution and, and letting, and, and gaining their trust. And I say they, but it's really me too, because while I may get to select where I go, I still have to ask the questions that they don't expect me to ask. The doctors don't expect me to ask just so I can make sure they run the type of tests that I know I need. And knowing that I relate to, a lot of people who have been uh, treated in a different way because they either think I don't know enough or I don't look the, the color or, or I'm just quiet and I'm sitting back and, and watching and observing. It's something that the more you are exposed to the challenges other people have, hopefully the more you'll understand, even if you haven't been through it, the more you'll understand why, their perspective. And it's our goal as healthcare providers, as business business people to develop more compassionate people and put them in positions to help make decisions for the masses. I think the more we do that, keeping the, the business aspect, we're keeping the bottom line looking right if we can. I mean, it really is though. If you, you have businesses that close because they don't have the customers because they may not have been treated right, this healthcare business is very similar. We just have a lot more work to do because there are a lot of people being affected in a negative way. And we can do it. We just one person at a time, I believe. Yep. That's the, that's the right answer. Although I don't like it, but. Cause we won't be around to see the change, right? We're, we're making changes. Yep. You know, but, 
Let me yeah. let me ask you. Let me switch sure. gears with you just for a second. And I apologize. I've kept you longer than I think I promised you. But the topic's important, and you speak very eloquently on it. So I want to take the time. And so I'm curious, though, on a personal level, what's your biggest challenge? Not for the organization. What's your biggest challenge? Trying to affect these changes. Trying to run this organization. What's your challenge? The challenge is financial. See, we're a nonprofit, private corporation. We have about 100 employees and we see somewhere around, uh, we see about 8,000 patients, but they make the the actual visits per year is around 20-something thousand visits. And uh, we're not fully funded by the federal government, so we, we get some seed money every year. But the rest of the funds comes from our billing patients. And of course, we have to provide good care if, if you want to make sure they pay us you know, what, what the, the fees are. But finances is big because if we had more funding, like a lot of the private practices who see prim- primarily private pay patients, pay, yep. yes, then we can expand and open up more sites throughout the Metroplex. And that's the way it is in a lot of of community-based health centers is that they're not fully funded by the government. So and we're, as a nonprofit, while we can still have a profit and we invest back into the corporation, we're usually in areas um, that don't allow us to expand. So we have to expand out and literally open up more sites. That's been my biggest challenge. And I've been with the company for almost 23 years. It'll be 23 years um, as a CEO in August. And our biggest challenge, even the, in the Dallas Metroplex, is to expand into more communities because we need the funds to do that. So that is another reason why I, I truly believe that more people are coming to us because if we were out close to them, they'd go, I think they would go to us where we are near them. Right. And, and there are a lot of communities like that. That is a big challenge. The other big challenge is recruiting, being able to recruit more primary care providers and nursing staff, because there still is a shortage of primary care physicians. Most of them leave and they have a lot of loans to repay. So they'll go into private practice. Fortunately, we have an agreement with the federal government to be a site whereby the doctors can work for us, get their salary like they normally do from us, but then they can have their loans paid off with an agreement between the government and the and the providers. Sure. So that's I've an arrangement. That in rural environments. Yes. We have the same type in the urban setting too. That's neat. So, but yeah, that's been the biggest challenge is, is really having the level of, of money that we need to support capital growth. I hear you. All right. So let me do this because I've kept you here for over 80% of an hour. Uh, and so I want to get you back to your mission. Um, your mission isn't talking to me for sure. But I want to thank you, Joyce, for joining the show today because I know you're busy for one. You got a lot of plates you're spinning and it's important what you're doing. So I appreciate you carving out the time to spread the message and let people know that there are areas where it can work and it is working and it's having an impact. So if you would like to learn more about the clinics or if you would like to contact Joyce directly, you can reach her at jtapley at foremostfhc.org. That is J-T-A-P-L-E-Y at F-O-R-E-M-O-S-T-F-H-C.org. Thanks, Joyce. Loved having you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate 
talking with you on the show. And I'm hoping the listeners could take something away that resonates with them for quite some time and certainly feel free to contact me. If needed. I'm sure they will. Thanks again, Joyce. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcast.